Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. I'm Shane, like you said, super happy to be with you guys. I'm uh, a youth pastor at Calvary Chapel in Vero Beach, um, and I am married to uh, my wife. Her name is Julianne. We're about to celebrate five years next month, which is exciting. Yeah. And uh, we have a two and a half year old son named Sid who got to do his favorite thing ever this morning, which is wake up at three in the morning. Um, so I'm like half of the Muppets movie and like eight episodes of Lion Guard in this morning, which is a Lion King spinoff show that stopped in 2015 that he really likes. Uh, but I'm going to be in Philippians chapter four this morning uh, in the scriptures and uh, goes like this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Lord God, we come before you this morning, Lord, with just a, a simple ask. Lord, would you just be with us? All we desire is your presence this morning. Lord, we have no other agenda but to be with you. And so, Lord, we want, we want to just invite you in to this place and into our hearts. And however you see fit, Lord, would you speak? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, anxiety is an incredibly common word, I think, that people uh, like to use uh, nowadays. But me, growing up, I felt like it wasn't as common as it is now. Um, a, a number of years ago, I was, it was the summer in between 7th and 8th grade, and we were going on a like youth camp trip uh, to California at this youth camp in California. And there was a group from our uh, youth group that were going. And uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's just where I live, but whenever you fly, you have to wake up like at ungodly hours. Like, why well, can't, it's never, it's never easy. And we live like two hours from the airport, so it's like even worse. So I remember uh, the whole youth group like stayed the night at my parents' house and we were like sleeping all over the place. And uh, we wake up at like probably three in the morning, but without the Muppets movie or Lion Guard. And we get uh, into the cars and we're, we're, we're headed up to the airport and we're gonna go to California. And uh, there was a, a good friend of mine whose sister was planning on going to the trip, but in that that morning, uh, she wasn't feeling well and, and told us that she had too much anxiety and she didn't want to go on the trip. And I didn't say anything to her at that time. I'm like 12 years old. Uh, but kind of my, my response to that was just like, anxiety. you're not anxious, you're just tired. I'm tired too. Like, just suck it up, get on the plane, have fun. It'll be a fun trip and whatever. And I remember in my little 12-year-old inner self just kind of like gaslighting this friend of mine and being like, you don't actually feel like that and, and whatever. And for years after, for whatever reason, I could not forgive myself for the way that 
again, I didn't say anything to her, but internally how I treated this person, because the more I kind of thought about what was going on in her, the more I could kind of understand that it was actually, not only was she probably telling the truth, but it's actually something that I have dealt with. Uh, as early on as second grade, I remember laying in a fold-out couch with my brother Nate uh, before the first day of second grade, just overwhelmed by the, the unknown of stepping into a new school year, a new teacher, new classmates, being separated from my brothers and being separated from my parents just in school for the day. I don't know what it's going to look like. And then fast forward again to a diner as I'm sitting across from my dad before the first day of sixth grade. And those feelings are coming back into my stomach as I'm scared of what a four foot 11 son of a pastor with a bowl cut and like SpongeBob sized front teeth is going gonna, is gonna to do walking into a, a new middle school and just being so overwhelmed to again, as I'm on a mission trip with a, a group from our church in Guatemala under a dimly lit porch sharing a devotional and those feelings suddenly come back, interrupting my thoughts and my feelings to where I I couldn't say what I prepared, and I could only utter the words, I can't, I can't. And then again, in the parking lot of, a, of our church after a Saturday night service, as my wife is pregnant with our first son and just overwhelmed by life and the unknown of the future, to holding my son in a hospital room and looking into his eyes for the first time and those feelings coming back and telling me that I can't raise him, I'm not good enough, I can't do it. And I'm, those feelings, I should have been familiar with or comfortable with, but they just kept coming back. And as I thought back to my life being marked by those moments of overwhelming emotions and nerves and fear and anxiety, those moments weren't the only times I felt it, but it was kind of an underlying buzz that was happening in all of my relationships and all of these situations in life that I was going through. And I bring all of that up because I don't think I'm the only one in this room that can relate to that. I think anxiety is incredibly common language in our culture because it's incredibly common in our culture. Anxiety is defined as a state of excess nervousness, typically about something with an uncertain outcome. And I think we can all relate to that feeling of overwhelming nerves due to some sort of circumstance. And in our culture right now, anxiety is incredibly common. It's uh, been studied that one in four 12 to 18-year-olds have been diagnosed with what's called anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorder is when those feelings of anxiety are the most predominant feeling for six or more months. The first kind of spike in our modern culture of anxiety disorder was uh, from 2007 into, until 2012, when the number of people dealing with anxiety disorder went from 7% to 27%. And in five years, it spiked 20%. And at the beginning of 2020, the number was around one in four adults dealing with anxiety disorder. At the end of that year, there was a follow-up study that showed one in three adults were dealing with anxiety disorder. Since then, the numbers have kind of leveled out at about 20% of adults and 25% of young people that are dealing with over overwhelming anxiety. But the problem isn't even necessarily that we all just have some sort of problem, but we live in a culture that has been described as an, as an anxious system. 
meaning the, the kind of constant talking heads on the news or what social media does or implementing all of these safety protocols in schools and more drills and more standardized testing and more uh, in, in the workplace. And all of that is increasing not only anxiety that's happening in us, but there's an anxiety that's happening around us. And in response to this overwhelming anxiety, we are met with this scripture written by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. Be anxious for nothing, but, he says, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind. In response to anxiety, we have this promise from the scriptures, this promise of peace. Now, the most common definition of peace or the way that it is used is defined as a state of tranquility or quiet due to the absence of conflict. It's kind of the way that we typically use the word peace. There was a war happening and there was a ceasefire and now there's peace. Or we were, there was fighting in our home, but we made up or we got over it or we forgot about it and now there's peace in our home. Or we were running around bringing our kids to practices and now they're finally asleep and we're sitting on the couch and we put on the new David Beckham documentary and we're finally at peace. And we so often view as peace as this absence of conflict around us that causes the absence of the feeling of conflict within us. We view peace as an equal opposite to anxiety. Anxiety is chaos happening around that causes chaos within. So peace then must be, there's peace happening around us and it'll cause peace within but I think the problem of viewing peace in this way is it actually causes us to really misunderstand the meaning of this scripture. Because I don't believe that peace is an equal opposite to anxiety. I believe that the peace that surpasses all understanding that is guarding our hearts and minds is not determined by the situations that we find ourselves in life. The peace that is offered to us by God is much different than worldly peace. But if we view God's peace as the same as this world, worldly peace of an absence of conflict, I believe that it actually can kind of skew the view that we have of God and his character. John Lennon, everyone's favorite Beatle, had a conversation uh, with a trauma therapist and learned a pretty interesting idea. The doctor said that in his experience, uh, when working with people who have, uh, are walking through traumas or difficulties in life or troubling times, they tend to, quote, cling to the idea of God. But because of their difficulty and lack of ability, the idea of a God that could help and supply their needs is very desirable. But he also said that when the difficulty has gone away, life has stabled out and the problems are all gone, people tend to ditch the idea of God because their problem's no longer there. They're convinced that they can handle their life on their own. Now, I think I could go on like all day about how I disagree with that. I mean, that's terrible. John Lennon goes on to write a song called God that has the lyric, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. 
Crazy lyric, crazy view of God. Now, I don't think any of us would agree with that theologically, but I do believe that some of us live as if those words are true. For many of us, issues or difficulty cause us to run to the presence of God, hope that we, he fixes our issues so that we can then go back to what we were doing before. That's true to the Israelites all over the book of Judges. They would be at peace under God's protection. In the time of peace, they would forget about God and his statutes and they'd begin to follow their own desires. That would cause them to be captive to their desires and lead them into captivity with the surrounding nations. They would be oppressed by their captors long enough to remember that they needed God. They would cry out and God would raise up a judge for them and deliver them from captivity back into safety, protection, and peace. But in the time of peace, they would forget about God and his statutes and begin to follow their own desires. And the cycle would then repeat. And for many of us, we walk through difficult seasons of life where we are captive to our sin or our fear or our circumstances. And we cling to God and we cry out for help. And we ask for him to intervene. And so often he pulls us up from the pit and sets our feet on the on the rock, but then in the time of peace, we forget about God or we at least slow down into running to him. We no longer recognize our desperate need for his presence in our life. And then we hope that at least the cycle would repeat, but it doesn't always. We sometimes then look for answers someplace else. And I believe that this incomplete view of God's peace causes us to view God incorrectly. God is not some sort of cosmic vending machine that is there to answer our questions or answer our problems, but he is a person to be known. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I was being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He says, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus here, he's speaking of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the peace of God that is now becoming more available to the followers of God. And this word that he uses, the Greek word that is in the text is the word eres, which is, uh, trans, could also be translated as completeness or soundness or control. It's very similar to the Hebrew word, which is shalom, that could be translated similarly, completeness, completeness soundness, welfare, or peace. Jesus is speaking here that, that God is pouring out the Spirit so that we can be made complete, so that we can be made whole. And in our wholeness, in the presence of God, we can find peace. God isn't just a vending machine that we put in our desires through prayer and patiently, oh man, patiently wait and wish for him to give us what we ask for, but he's a person to be known. He's a heavenly father that cares for us. And we don't just receive like little gifts from him, but we receive one gift, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And because he is a person, 
we don't just put in a payment and receive a good, but we actually engage in relationship with that person. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but peace is the presence of a person, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. God is not some sort of formula to be learned, but he is a father to be known. And so if we want to walk in biblical peace, we walk in relationship with Jesus. So if Jesus is the answer, if the presence of God is the answer to our anxiety, it is the peace that we are so desperately longing for, how do we engage in relationship with that person? Point number one, if you like to take notes, we, we direct our attention onto God. Direct our attention onto God. That's what Paul is writing in Philippians 4. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Directed attention onto God. That is my favorite and most simple definition of prayer. Prayer is simply directing our attention onto God. Worry so often comes from feeling alone and isolated, but the peace of God comes by God being present in our life, in our decision-making, and in our struggles. When we pray to God, His peace is fighting for us rather than our own thoughts or our own internal dialogue so often fighting against us. But reading kind of Paul's language here, it seems a bit, I don't know, inconsiderate maybe. He gives like the worst anxiety advice ever to start his little thing. Uh, there's this old SNL skit, I think Bob Hope is in it, where he's a therapist and someone uh, comes in and she's, she, uh, you know, a patient comes in and she asks the question like, you charge for only the first five minutes, but I have a whole hour. Like, why don't you? She's like, oh, we don't need more than five minutes. She's like, oh, okay. So then she begins to open up to him about what she's going through. She's like, I have this fear of being buried alive. And so then he's like, have you ever been buried alive? She's like, no. She's like, okay, I'm going to say something to you. It's very simple. She like pulls her journal out. She's like, he's like, you don't need that. You're going to remember it. Then he goes, stop it. <laughs> stop. She's like, well, well, no, I'm stop it. And honestly, that's kind of how Paul's language comes across here. You're anxious, don't be. <laughs> be anxious for nothing. Like, well, thanks, Paul. Paul's actually kind of pulling a, a card out of Jesus' playbook. Uh, Jesus talking about worry. He's like, you, why do you worry? I don't know. Does worrying make you taller? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry, Jesus. I don't know. Uh, but Paul is like, don't be anxious. And, and, and sometimes that, reading that, it can come off very inconsiderate. But perhaps the most inconsiderate thing that Paul tells us to do is that he tells us that prayer is actually going to solve it. The reason why I say that is because for many of us, prayer brings up a lot more hurt than it does hope or even help. When we think of prayer, so often we think of the countless prayers that we have cried out to God that seems to have fallen on deaf ears. We pray and we pray, Lord, would you heal this person and, and they're still sick? Lord, would you intervene and, and, and do this? And it doesn't seem like he does. 
or me every October just laying in bed like, Lord, would you please help the Dodgers to win at least a game in the playoffs? And he doesn't. And as silly as that sounds, I have some of the most struggles with my faith the night the Dodgers get knocked out of the playoffs every October. And I'm like, but Lord, I prayed and I asked. I just don't understand why you didn't answer. But I digress. When we think of the idea of prayer, so often we cannot help but think of all the prayers that have gone unanswered. And so often we think that because I have prayed for something and God didn't do what I asked, my prayer doesn't work. But I think that we sometimes misunderstand the effectiveness of prayer. Jesus, so famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating drops of blood in agony as he cries out to the Father, Lord, would you take this cup of suffering away from me? And what Jesus is asking is, Lord, would you take the cross out of my future? But what happens? Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus' prayer didn't work. He prayed, God, would you remove this? And God essentially said no. But I would argue that Jesus' prayer in the garden, as he prayed, take this cup from me, but the second half he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that prayer actually strengthened him to be able to bear the cup that God had prepared for him. And so often when we're praying and we're saying, Lord, would you remove this? Would you heal this? Would you fix this? I believe that God, he may want to do those things, but he definitely wants to equip you to go through whatever situation you're going through. I don't think that God always wants to change the situation, although he is more than capable to do it, but God does always want to change you in your situation. Maybe there's something going on in in your family or at work or in your life where you're saying, Lord, would you remove this from my life? And God says, no, I actually want to equip you to bear it. And so often what we think of peace is that it's the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of the person of Jesus in our life that comes upon us and empowers us and strengthens us to do what God has called us to do. Prayer is the means by which we tether ourselves to the reality of the nearness of God and the power of God that works on our side and enables us to do things that we cannot do on our own. Paul is saying that prayer is effective because prayer brings us closer to the person of Jesus who is peace incarnate, who will equip us and strengthen us for, to quote Paul, every good work. Secondly, uh, we have directed attention onto God and we also have directed attention onto the things of God. Directed attention onto the things of God. Sometimes in the scriptures, uh, the little kind of subheadings tend to throw us off a little bit. I think they, those little subheadings that's like breaking everything up which makes it easier to give us a stopping point as we're reading our Bible or whatever, or it really helps us who teach the scriptures know like 
how to break it up each week. It's like, oh, this subheading is excellent. Uh, but sometimes it gets in the way. Paul, he says uh, this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything prayer and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And then in the very next verse, in verse eight, he says, finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, he says, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and saw in me, these do, and the peace of God will be with you. Excuse me, the God of peace will be with you. Paul, immediately following his, his uh, addressing the reality of anxiety and the importance of prayer that tethers us to the person of Jesus, he goes on to uh, address where our mind goes and what we think about. Let me tell you a little bit about my diet because we have time. I'm a, I'm a recovering junk food addict, Okay. Actually, I would go as far to say as I'm a recovered junk food addict, okay? It's been about a year and a half. I've been doing good. I've been getting exercise. I've been eating well. Uh, so I'm on the other side of this. It's important that I say this because you're about to lose all respect for me. A typical day about two years ago, before I uh, came on staff at Calvary as a youth pastor, I worked as a barber in a barber shop. And so this was kind of my average Thursday, okay? I'd wake up, I'd go to the coffee shop, I would get a cappuccino and a nice chocolate croissant, and I'd sit and I'd eat it. Then I'd go to the barber shop, I would do a couple of haircuts by around 10.30 or so. I'd worked up an appetite. I would go next door where there was another coffee shop and they had this insane like hummus sandwich, which it sounds healthy, but it probably really is not. And it's like on this massive croissant with uh, loads of hummus and things like that. Then my wife would come at around, I don't know, 11.30 with lunch. And nine times out of 10, it's like an Italian sub from Jersey Mike's with uh, Miss Vicky's jalapeno chips, which are the only chips that matter, and a soda, and I would eat that. Then I would get off work at four. Uh, I pick a Thursday because it's really the worst of the worst. Thursday nights are uh, our youth night. So I'd leave work early on a Thursday, and I'd have to fuel up before youth. So I'd run through McDonald's. I would grab uh, two McDoubles and a McChicken and a value fry and a large Coke, which is my order. But I haven't had it in about a year and a half, okay? So don't make me go back. And then I'd, I'd get to youth, you know, party it up with the youth students, go home. Julianne, my wife, she would make a massive bowl of spaghetti. I would have probably one, two, maybe three bowls. And I'm not exaggerating. We'd hang out, turn the Dodgers on. They would probably lose around midnight. I would go and get, this is where I'm going to lose all of you guys. Top ramen noodles, some crushed red pepper, another bag of Miss Vicky's chips, and a Shirley Temple. It's my literally every night midnight snack. I'm not exaggerating, but I've recovered and I eat better now. Uh, the reason why I tell you this is because what I consumed is like actually horrible. It's kind of embarrassing. But there's something for me about junk food. Just the, man, I just want to eat it. 
It's easy, it's quick, it satisfies a little bit of hunger that is within me, and I feel good for about 35 seconds until I'm hungry for something else. I ate so frequently because the food I was eating wasn't actually food. And, and so I'm consuming these, these things, but if I were to take a look into many of your minds and to think about the things that you think about throughout the day, I, and think about my own mind, I think it would look a lot like my average Thursday when I was working at the barbershop. What is it that we're constantly consuming? What are the things that we're intaking that are actually forming the way that we feel or the way that we think? What are the things that I am dwelling on, or to use Paul's language, I am meditating on that are causing me to feel the way that I feel? Because I'm not thinking about anything of nutritional value that is causing me to feel good or to uh, experience God's presence, but so often we tend to dwell on the things that cause discomfort. We think back on a conversation that we had with someone, we replay it in our mind, and we're telling ourselves how they were actually really upset with us, or we're telling ourselves that they actually did something that is really upsetting to us, or we're constantly thinking about all of these uncontrollable situations in our life that cause us to feel like our world is caving in on us, and what our minds look like is often what my Thursday diet looks like, filled with what I call junk food thoughts. As we just, we feast on whatever's easy and convenient that thinks it's gonna help. But Paul, what he says is that we need to meditate on whatever things are true and pure and good and noble and praiseworthy. He says, if those things are around, we need to choose to meditate on those things and the God of peace will be with us. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, he spends a lot of time addressing the mind. To Timothy, he writes, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. To the Romans, he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To the Ephesians, he says, be renewed by the spirit of your mind. To the Philippians, he tells us to put on the mind of Christ. And to the Corinthians, he says, to take every thought captive. To the Colossians, he says, set your minds on things above. To the Apostle Paul, the mind is the place where learning about God turns to living for God and living aware of his presence. So if we want to be able to walk through any situation in life, whether it is chaotic or it's peaceful, we need to be able to meditate on the things of God. David in Psalm 23, he paints such a beautiful picture as he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The worship team, you guys are welcome to come up now as I begin to close. As David wrote this, I can't help but think of the imagery that was probably happening in King David's mind as he penned those words. David wrote Psalm 23, it's believed to be at the end of his life. 
And if you guys remember in, in David's story, he has a desire to build a temple for God. And God speaks and says that you can't build a temple because you are a man of war. So no doubt as David is recounting his life in the faithfulness of God throughout the course of his life at the end, considering that he is a man of war, when he writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, there is a picture of a battlefield. Enemies all around. And David, the warrior that he was, would be be fending them off with with a sword or with a bow or with a horse or with a, a slingshot or whatever the weapon that he had was. But he says that God prepared a table in the presence of those enemies. And a table, it's this picture of a feast to to stop the fighting, to sit with God and to be sustained and satisfied with what God has prepared for him. I imagine in this table, there are still sounds of of swords brushing up against each other. The the sound of, of battle is happening all around, but David is sitting at the table in the presence of God. And really what the idea of biblical peace the peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard our hearts and mind is is for us to stop the fighting, to put our swords down in our life and in our situation, and to sit at the table in the presence of God, to direct our attention onto him, and to direct our attention onto the things of him that he has prepared for us. Because in our life, our situations will probably uh, not change all that much. Our schedule probably won't change. We'll probably have way too much responsibility and not enough time to get it done. The news is going to continue to broadcast the worst parts of humanity. Uh, We will still hurt people's feelings and our feelings will be hurt in return. We'll still have the roar of culture and coworkers or classmates and friends that cause us to feel like a tightness in our chest and a lump in our stomachs. Our emotions will continue to run wild and our situation may never get easier. And that's fine. We'll still need to get up and go to work and we'll still need to uh, go to school or fill out the job application, college application. You'll still learn to apologize and to accept apologies. But most important, we need to learn to step out in faith and to be caught by the grace of God and the goodness of God. We'll still mess up and we'll still give in and and feel the consequences of giving into our emotions. But life continues, difficult situations will never cease, but God promises to be with us in every moment, to protect us. The verse just before Philippians uh, 4, 6 and verse five, at the very end, Paul writes that the Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. The Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. And he's writing this to a church that is overwhelmed with fear because of the persecution of Christians that is happening in the culture at the time. They hear of of their hero, the Apostle Paul, who is in chains in prison because of the gospel. And he is writing, he's saying, the Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. No matter what the situation is, 
The reality is, the truth is that God is near. And the way that we engage with this this God who is close to us is through prayer and through directing our attention onto his presence in any moment. We have access. We've been given access because of Jesus, who is our great high priest who passed through the heavens to be with us, to sympathize with our weakness. So therefore, we can go boldly into the throne room of grace where we will find mercy and help in our time of need. We have access to God at any moment and the God that we have access to uh, promises us peace, peace in the storms, peace in the battlefield, peace within ourselves when we become our own worst enemy. And what we need to do is to look to God, to cling to God and to rely on God in those moments.